Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome. This is the Contemplating Christian, and today we are talking about once again Mr. C.S. Lewis and another one of his essays from the collected essays of the Weight of Glory. Uh, mm -hmm. So, using this essay again as kind of a jumping-off point for just discussion and uh, all sorts of topics surrounding theology and apologetics and just how to think in general. So this essay is in particular is titled, Is Theology Poetry? And this was basically the question posed to C.S. Lewis is, is theology uh, simply something that gives us an imaginative burst of energy or an imaginative delight, but it doesn't have anything more than that? Kind of like poetry. So poetry gives us sort of a aesthetic appeal but it isn't often true, um, or at least that's how people would think of poetry. And the question is asking, is theology more than that, or is it merely poetry is a good way to think about it. So what is C.S. Lewis's thoughts about theology as it relates to things like poetry and myth is sort of the, the big topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously in, in his essays and his talks, he hits many points. So we are going to not just talk about poetry and theology. Um, we'll, we'll get into other things, but uh, that's one of the big topics. And then also just one thing you'll notice is that he's actually, he's just given this question. And so one thing I observed from it is that sometimes we have to face these questions or roadblocks uh, without a choice. Like he didn't get to choose the talk or choose what he's going to talk about or something. No, he was just like given it and he kind of took it head on, which is, which is really cool and thing, and that's something we need to do. Uh, if something in our Christian lives comes up, don't uh, don't like choose a choose something that you want to do. Face it, right? Um, but but yeah, when it comes to theology and and poetry, the the main question, or he he actually like restates the question. Uh, the main thing I got from that is, does theology kind of like attract our imagination or yeah, is there is there an intellectual ascent because we enjoy it, or is the intellectual ascent mistaken for joy? So it's like it's really hitting. How does our intellect and this imagination and desire we have, how, like, where's that connection? Which comes first? Which comes second? Uh, mm -hmm. Do we have one and then like are are disillusioned about the other? And like, how, how exactly does that does that work? That's I believe C.S. Lewis is getting at. Right, he says, and I shall take it that the question I am to answer is this. Does Christian theology owe its attraction to its power of arousing and satisfying our imaginations? Are those who believe it mistaking aesthetic enjoyment for intellectual assent or assenting because they enjoy? So basically, is theology just in the same way that poetry, we just like it because it, you know, sparks our imagination. Is theology any more than that? Is the Christian faith any deeper than that or any truer than that. And C.S. Yeah. Lewis, as a lover of poetry and as a lover of theology, has lots of thoughts about that. Yeah. So, And he goes straight into answering it, but he, he actually says that Christianity isn't really that attractive comparatively. Um, and that's not, not saying that the, uh, the stories of the Bible aren't interesting or something like that, but what he is saying is that if we're trying to capture the imagination or get like some really interesting desire within us, there are so many other stories that are better. He, 
he specifically points to all the mythologies. So the Greek mythologies, um, you, you can also say Roman or, or Egyptian or uh, anything like that. But his favorite is Norse mythology. All those are much more heroic. So Odin fighting in his stories, that's that's heroic. God being omnipotent uh, and all-powerful isn't necessarily like some heroic story that we strive to to be like or or desire. It doesn't really capture the imagination. Now it's true. And it's awesome, right. but it doesn't function like those stories do. So if Christianity right. is compared with those stories, it's actually not that attractive of a story. Right. Yeah. And so I think, uh, I think to speak for Lewis a little bit here, what I think he would say, I think C.S. Lewis would still affirm. And he has said elsewhere, like, Christianity is the true myth. It's the true yeah. story. It's it's the best story. He would agree with that. But there are like purely imaginative stories that can capture the imagination in ways that um, because scripture and Christianity is both true and it is imaginative as well. Like there is a there's mythical elements and there's true elements. And for C.S. Lewis, again, these aren't opposites. Mm. Uh, yeah. Myth is real. Like uh, the myths are actually um, real to him in a, in a very true way because they kind of come from uh, all of our consciousness and uh, our collected histories and all these things develop these myths. And mm. so they don't have like zero truth value to C.S. Lewis, but he's saying yeah. Christianity is the actual true one where history and myth meet. Um, yeah. That is why I think to kind of show his cards, why um, Christianity is the way he's describing it is um, maybe slightly less interesting or less imaginative than the other mythologies that he has in mm -hmm. mind. That's because I think it's actually true because yeah. there's actually a real historical core there. That's what makes it sort of in between uh, myth and like boring history is because yeah. it's actually kind of both to him. Yeah. And he points out that the imagination works in a couple ways. Uh, one is that it embraces the object completely. It loves to do that. And then it also loves to lose itself in some uh, in some idea where you can't quite figure it out, and you're just like forever thinking about it and pondering it. And so it it does those two things. And so I I think we would rightly say that when it comes to God's infinity, we can't embrace the object completely because our minds can't wrap ourselves around God. Um, maybe we can say we can lose ourselves in Christianity. Right. And kind of not like lose yourself, like no identity, but like our minds can just kind of like ponder and contemplate uh, infinite things. So we can enjoy it in that way. Um, but the biggest point is that with mythologies and stories, we can embrace the object completely uh, as in mythologies. Here's how I'd put it. Mythologies are fun because we know they don't exist. Yeah. And I think right. C.S. Lewis says something to that degree. Right. He says a believed idea feels different from an idea that is not believed. And that peculiar flavor of the believed is never in my experience without a special sort of imaginative enjoyment. So he's saying that there is this different feeling of an idea that is, you know, it's false, but it's purely imaginative. And he's saying that Christianity is actually not in that camp. It's different because there's also the historical piece there. That's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Real events, they give us a different aesthetic satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. um, so 
right? We can't just use the imagination and just go wild, but these real events, we can still be satisfied with them aesthetically. So the facts of Jesus's death and resurrection actually happen. If we actually believe that it's a real event, um, we are aesthetically satisfied with that to an extent. Obviously it's not all imagination. Um, we, we believe it's real now. Atheists might be in a different camp. They actually believe it's it's false. So they might actually say that uh, the Christian story is quite imaginative because they don't believe it's real. They think it's just another myth or something like that. But real events still can aesthetically satisfy us, as in there's still some beauty to it. Right. Right. And then it kind of gets into uh, this idea that basically everybody has a myth that they live their life by. So nobody escapes mythology. Nobody escapes uh, story. So he goes into kind of the sci the scientific outlook on life, the scientific materialist worldview, and talks about how they themselves have their own mythology. Um, and again, he's using myth in a very broad kind of sense of the word. But he kind of outlines this myth of Darwinism, the story of Darwinism, of um, everybody has this worldview and this story that they live their life by. There's an origin, there's a meaning, there's a conflict, and there's a resolution. And in Darwinism, there is an origin story to mankind, and it is dull. <laughs> it's dull, and it's from randomness and chaos and, and just blind evolution. Um, but he says how everybody lives their life by a myth. Everybody lives their life by a guiding story and a guiding narrative. And so nobody can escape it. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not whether, but which. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when it comes to, uh, when it comes to believing things, he, he actually says there's certain poetry or enjoyment that comes from believing something true, but with, with science and, uh, if we want to say scientism, uh, and that, that term, which is just the belief that the material world pretty much explains everything it, everything and it's like a uh it's a complete worldview but there there is something uh to that that is like uh mythology or fairy tale-ish right mm -hmm. um and he describes there's sort of some type of tragic irony so there there is a story um we have an origin we, we came from chaos and things are getting grander and grander right we always go from like uh matter to mind or uh, we're always advancing, but on the flip side, there is like a, a twist at the end, which is everything will die, right? Mm -hmm. Everything will fade out of existence. Everything will uh, eventually grow cold and there will be no energy left. Um, and right. he actually has that as part of this story and, and myth that science, uh, like the people who adhere to just science believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And so he has this idea that uh, theology does dip into poetical elements. It has poetical elements to it. But again, he's making the point that every worldview does. So he says, mm -hmm. we, can, we cannot therefore turn down theology simply because it does not avoid being poetical. All worldviews yield poetry to those who believe them by the mere fact of being believed. So they're all faith-based positions. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody's mm -hmm. placing their faith, uh, placing their faith in my biology told, teacher told me this, this, and this, and I looked at the scientific ev evidence, and it's probabilistic in nature, and so therefore I'm putting my trust in that. Uh, yeah. Every worldview has faith 
elements to it. And he's saying, nearly all have certain poetical elements, whether you believe them or not. This is what we should expect. Man is a poetical animal. Yeah. And he he points out that everything, just by virtue of being believed, brings some type of beauty or poetry. Mm. Um, so just because I believe a worldview, to like there's going to be some type of beauty in that or um, aesthetic satisfaction. So I'm sure atheists in their whole worldview, they think some things about their um, their view is beautiful or it mm -hmm. satisfies something in them, right? Right. Uh, just because they believe it. Right. I've, I've heard atheists say as such, I've heard atheists say things like, like in, in asking them the question, well, is there really any meaning to life? And they'll say, well, no, that's the whole beauty of it is that you just create your own meaning. Yeah. That's, that is a, a poetical element to the atheist yeah. worldview that is believed. Yeah. Or some of them, I've actually heard say the, to me, see, to me, this is kind of sad, but uh, to them, it's, it, it's like beautiful. They love the idea that one day everything will be gone and no one will remember them. Right. No one will, will especially if you've done like bad things that that's actually like kind of, that would be like sort of comforting. Like, Oh, I've done bad sure. things soon. No one will remember and we'll all be dead. Uh, yeah. So I won't have to face them, but um, Christians are, on a different idea, whereas like we we can't necessarily have that comfort because everything will definitely be remembered and you will definitely have to face uh, judgment. So there there is something uh, nice to that for for atheists, mm -hmm. right? He goes on, yeah, I think it's good. He goes on to talk about let's let's chat a little bit about other religions and their comparisons and the comparisons and similarities with Christian theology. So yeah. C.S. Lewis has a lot to say about this. What do you make of this idea that there are other religions that have elements of Christianity? Doesn't that mean that Christianity is just borrowing from those myths? Yeah. Um, so there, again, there are two ways to think about it. Um, obviously, there are uh, myths and other religions that have stuff in common. Mm -hmm. And people would say, uh, like, oh, the death and return of Balder and the death and resurrection of Jesus are similar uh and so they must be the same thing so that's one way to think about it but that doesn't exhaust all the options right it's not like that's the only way to think about it another way to think about it is it again it allows for that and we should actually expect that because he uh he, i think he brings up actually john one but there's the divine light which lighteneth all men um mm -hmm. and so in John one, it talks about how Christ is um, is obviously the world word, but he gives light to the world and he gives mm -hmm. some type of light to all men. So if people have some idea of the truth, we should actually expect stories or religions with similar elements to pop up. Um, right. Now, the, the important thing here is that it doesn't determine truth value. So resemblances in one thing or another does not determine truth value. So if we apply this to literally anything else, it wouldn't work. So if, um, so if I could even do that with like um, atheism and Christianity. There are some things we can agree with. Like um, I'm sure with, with atheists, I can agree that murder is wrong, but just because there's that um, 
resemblance right there. And the thing we agree on doesn't mean that both of us are false, right? So just because a Greek mythology and uh, a Christian story have a resemblance doesn't mean, oh, that one's false. So this one is false. All right. Because then we, we would just apply that to everything and everything would be false. Right. So this is this big theme in C.S. Lewis's writings of, uh, I've heard it called seeds of truth, seeds of truth. So this idea that every man has these kind of seeds of grace or seeds of truth within them that lead them to some knowledge of the truth. Uh, and obviously some accountability and more and responsibility Mm. before God. Um, but it also gets them onto what the real truth is. And so that comes out in the writings of pagans. And so it says, um, you can kind of look at it as when you see these resemblances in other religions, you can say, ah, so much worse for the Christians. And then he Mm. says, or you can think about it as so much better for the pagans. (laughs) The pagans are actually onto something a little bit. Um, And you see that in different degrees. So somebody like Plato and Aristotle, they get pretty dang far in uh, approaching the truths about God. Yeah. Uh, They get in morality and virtue and things they get, they get a lot of things right. Um, More so than, like say pantheism or something like that, even though there's still some stuff that's right. And so there's seeds of truth in every man. Yeah. And he, he makes an analogy for this, but uh, when it comes to the myth to fact, like myth become fact Mm -hmm. um, type of idea. First thing I, he, he has another essay. So I think he's either referencing this other essay or he eventually writes an essay like that. I'm not sure which one came first. But there's actually an essay called Myth uh, Become Fact. Uh, but anyway, he his analogy is like is with sight and something coming into focus. If if we're going to take the view that there's these resemblances, so then it's false. That would be like focusing on something and then everything gradually becomes like blurred. But he actually says it's the opposite way, whereas um, we see these resemblances. So it's like uh, something gradually comes into focus. Right. So. Uh, this is, this is one of the big ideas in this, uh, in this essay, but it's, if, if Christianity is true, then everything will eventually start becoming clearer and make sense as in Christianity can allow and explain everything, but, mm-hmm. um, the other, uh, the other ones cannot. So if I, if I go the opposite way, every, everything will be blurred. But if we mm-hmm. actually believe in Christianity, things will become clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I found this part really interesting too. This idea of um, basically how the Christian story gets kind of goes from legend to historical. So this yeah. probably up, upset a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. um, C.S. Lewis's kind of honest thoughts about some of the things in the Old Testament, and uh, we're not making a specific judgment about that, or even sharing our specific opinions about this at the moment. Yeah, uh, that could be for another time. But C.S. Lewis talks about. He says. Um, the earliest stratum of the Old Testament contains many truths. So he says many truths in a form which I take to be legendary or even mythical hanging in the clouds. But gradually the truth condenses, becomes more and more historical. And he says from things like Noah's Ark or the sun standing still upon Ajalon, you come down to the court memoirs of King David. Finally, you reach the New Testament and history reigns supreme and the truth is incarnate. Okay, so. A lot of people probably not like what he's saying there, but he's he is saying that there's things in the Old Testament that he believes are true, but they're in the form of legend. They're in the form of myth. Yeah. Similar to ancient myths. 
Um, yeah. So just CS Lewis yeah. has some interesting takes on that. Yeah. So that would be like the uh, kind of the view of like mytho historical language of Genesis mm -hmm. or something like that. But sure. he, he actually says that um, when heavenly things come down, it loses its beauty. So this kind of explains what we were talking about before theology and poetry with mm -hmm. all those myths and stories that are um, fantastic and that we would love to think about. Those are heavenly truths. They point to heavenly truths. Now right. they aren't historic, so they aren't worth actually believing are like things that really happened, but mm -hmm. they, they have elements of truth to them that are heavenly. And so captures our imagination we want to desire them but there is a humiliation in something heavenly becoming earthly so that's with like christ becoming human from heaven to earth from god and taking on human flesh that's uh like a lot of people don't like to think about this but it's actually humiliating for god to do that right um so when something like that happens it loses its aesthetic a lot of it's aesthetic value. So that's why we see in uh, that's why we see in the Old Testament when we have some of these heavenly truths, um, especially of the places that we uh, that people would say are mytho historical language, it's it captivates us. Like for me, Genesis one captivates my imagination really, really, really well. But some of the historical books, not so much, even though I still like reading them because I believe they're true. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. And that's 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 the point right there. It's mm -hmm. um, it's that as things progress, it comes more and more into focus. That's his point right there. As in as the Old Testament went to the New Testament, things came into focus and started to make more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So then he gets into kind of a critique then and kind of a, after kind of laying these things out and laying out how every worldview has mythical, mythical elements to it, he kind of goes into then comparing a little bit and critiquing, kind of comparing which one's right or critiquing uh, naturalism in light of Christianity. Uh, and so he talks about how basically what I take from it is that the right worldview is the one that explains the most, that has the most explanatory power the one that explains the data the best that we see. And so then he kind of goes into a critique of uh, how naturalism and how Christianity compare and what they can explain mm -hmm. and what, what they can fit in. And so things like poetry and myth and story and even reason, and this is something we'll camp out on, yeah. uh, don't fit well within a naturalist worldview, but they do fit well within Christianity. Yeah. And even science, science itself does not fit well within a naturalist worldview. Yeah. And what leads up to that, though, uh, there is something that leads up to that, which is a big section. It's metaphorical and figurative language. Right. And this is actually part of how he critiques the scientific worldview, um, because a lot of people don't like metaphorical or figurative language. But he says we must use metaphorical and figurative language. Um, we have to. We cannot take something uh we we basically we cannot take something heavenly and describe it perfectly in language that refers to physical objects right, right. there's a problem with that so um even though god is king and he has a throne room he's not literally sitting on a chair with like four wooden legs 
up in heaven or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what he points out is that figurative language doesn't alter his belief, right? And the big point is this, this is actually a quote from it, but it says this, what you think is one thing, what you imagine while you are thinking is another thing. Um, and so the idea of this Old Testament stuff and this figurative language um, and us being uncomfortable with it, kind of like Will said, like some people are going to be uncomfortable with saying, yeah, those are heavenly or mythological truths or something like that. Um, he actually uses a nut analogy. Okay. He, he basically says that when we finally know this truth and uh, we know what the heavenly things are, we can accept this figurative language and um, we aren't foolish because we don't believe there's an actual throne. We're foolish because we know that there isn't a literal physical throne, right? Mm-hmm. So the nut analogy is if someone has a nut and they take the actual nut, throw it away and keep the shell, we'd call them a fool. But if someone takes off the shell and keeps the nut and throws away the shell, we wouldn't call them a fool, right? And he's saying that the figurative language um, works much like this. We can be we we can know and be done away with figurative language at some point and keep that kernel of truth that we're actually thinking of as opposed to imagining. Yeah. Hmm. And right. um and why this why this relates to science and the critique of science is he is he actually says everyone thinks with metaphorical language and figurative language and analogies. We only can think of God and heavenly things with analogies. But he also says science has to use analogies. So, for example, um, when we say the electrical impulses in our brain are passing through certain paths, well, they aren't actually passing through something like we walk through a door, right? Science has to explain it with some type of figurative language as well. Right. So it's just this idea of poetic mythical language, figurative language, all just basically is how humans communicate um, in a very fundamental way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he gets into like why it is incorrect to, to believe in, in science. Um, scientism. And, oh, it's scientism, not science. You can't accept science, but um, it's, it's this idea of reductionism, right? Yeah. Reductionism, which is uh Basically, we reduce everything to the physical, which is uh, basically his big problem with the atheist worldview. And what changed his mind is if everything we think is based on biochemistry and everything is just literally just a twitching of brain matter, how can I be sure that I'm right? How can I even know that I'm thinking correctly? Right. Um, Right. It makes no sense. And here's... Here's the really cool thing that I learned about this take is C.S. Lewis says this, um, science doesn't make sense of everything. And scientists know that they even admit that, that they say it can't explain everything. Um, and so it's not that they're trying to find something that can explain everything. They just say it makes, um, it makes it, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes more sense than, uh, than theism, right? So they would say, obviously, theism is just completely wrong. So we can't even hold to that. But we know that science 
has flaws and is wrong in some areas, but they won't believe in theism. He he says it's an a priori metaphysical prejudice. Yeah, and you can call this um, methodological naturalism. Yeah. So this idea that you, when you start in science today, scientists have to start because they'll get shamed if they don't. Basically, you have to start with the presupposition that theism is false and then do all of your scientific or historical work from there. And so many scholars and academics today function with the worldview of methodological naturalism. I'm going to assume that naturalism is true and then make my conclusions off of that. And we see that that's actually not a very charitable way or edifying way to do science. Um, cause you end up cutting off when you get to like, you brush up against these origin of life questions or origin of humanity questions, um, or origin of the universe stuff. When you block off theism as an option, you have to come up with stuff like the multiverse stuff. Like, <laughs> I mean, kind of honestly, silly things. Um, and so people think that the multiverse isn't silly, but that theism is, that's kind of the state of things when you presume that naturalism is true. Yeah. Um, that is true. And I think Alvin Plantinga has something similar to that. I think it's called the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, C.S. Lewis has this same argument, but I mean, you, you can't help but think that they actually think it's like stupid, right? When, I mean, when you read C.S. Lewis, that's, I mean, that's like the one thing that changed his mind to theism. It was just that right there where he struggled with it so much. And he, he just thought it was the dumbest idea to believe that, um, chemical like biochemistry can make us think correctly and find truth. Right. Um, which, which you can't. Right. So he, uh, he goes over this idea of, um, like what you called, what Plantinga calls the evolutionary argument against naturalism kind of in CS Lewis as well, this idea that reason, on an evolutionary worldview, reason doesn't make a lot of sense. Reason is something that is not geared towards truth. It's geared towards survival value. So why should we be trusting our intuitions and our reasoning processes when they didn't evolve with any aim towards truth? And what is yeah. what even is truth in a worldview um, yeah. like naturalism? And so he kind of canvasses that whole argument. That's a big theme in C.S. Lewis's writings and goes over how, but in, and even science itself is undermined when you yeah. lose, if reasons undermined, science is also undermined. And so he makes a big point about that. And then sort of kind of brings it back to Christianity of how Christianity is able to fit all of these things harmoniously in its worldview. Yeah. Science, and, science makes, science makes sense because God's the designer and we're studying his world. Reason makes sense because we're made in the image of God. God's a rational mind. We're a rational mind. It makes sense. Yeah. And he brings up the old chicken and egg dilemma uh, he he calls it something else. I don't know what he calls it, but it, it must be like a an owl. Yeah, an owl and the egg. Yeah, that must just be like what they yeah. say in like Britain or something. But <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, chicken or egg? Uh, he says we're actually trained to believe it's the egg. We're we're trained to believe in the chicken popping out of the egg, but then we forget about the chicken that laid the egg, right? And so we we kind of just automatically take the scientific and materialistic route where like mm -hmm. if if you are a scientism you're most likely going to hold to the egg first right that uh pops everything out but creationists would most likely hold to 
the animals were just created then the egg came mm -hmm. right um so that that's just an interesting point kind of like showing the a priori bias right there we're kind of training up kids to picture the egg as opposed to the chicken in uh, a dilemma like that um but yet theism does seem to make sense and it's this fact that science fits into theism but theism doesn't fit into science. And he actually uses another analogy, which is really, really helpful, which is dream and reality. Um, he knows that he's dreaming when he's in reality because he can analyze his dream, as in reality fits the dream in. But when he's dreaming, reality isn't fit into the dream, which is no, which is how he knows what is reality and what's not. He can't analyze reality in the dream, but he can analyze the dream in reality. Right. Right. Totally. And so he says, basically, he describes his own intellectual journey and he says how um, I cannot, once I became uh, exposed to this full scientific worldview, I became convinced that this just doesn't work. This doesn't reason doesn't make any sense. And the entire work of science itself doesn't make any sense. And so he describes that he came to this conclusion. And then from that, believe that theism must have been the more probable option. And then he says, once you become a theist, then you must uh, wrestle with the claims of Christ himself. And then he, of course, hints at his famous liar, lunatic Lord argument and yeah. says, Jesus is either a lunatic or he's God and he wasn't a lunatic. And so he kind of shades that as well. Um, mm. And just saying that Christianity just starts to make sense of these pieces. Yeah. And, and all of this, go ahead. Now, I was just going to kind of read the end there because he yeah. it, it all leads to this fact of dreaming to waking in his experience, right? His conversion, he said he went from dreaming to waking, right? Christianity might not be the most poetic thing, but it allows for the most poetic. And so this is the last section of the essay, which is, um, which is, it isn't the whole last paragraph because that's really long, but I'm going to read um, the ending section of the last paragraph. And it says this, the waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific points of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe, and this is his famous line that he ends with, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just wonderful. So that kind of wraps up what we're talking about here with Lewis talking about just how theism makes sense of our experience, makes sense of the world around us, and thus is a reasonable thing to believe. And so theology uh, is more than poetry. It has poetic elements, but ultimately it rises above that because it is actually true. It has that benefit of actually being true. And that's what we believe Christianity to be as well. Mm -hmm. So this has been the Contemplating Christian, another contemplation on C.S. Lewis and his essays. Uh, mm -hmm. If you enjoy this, uh, feel free to look in the description uh, to uh, find ways to support us. But this has been uh, the Contemplating Christian. So we will see you next time. God bless. Mm -hmm.